Hello, I'm Bill Bryson, and I'm speaking to you in English. And so are all these people. Fela itchon thambercha ye bieden habe, rathra wurda. Ye seach itch werda god. Are we were a nevra nan mathtiers, swa peened as he were. The druct of math chath persed to the rota. And bathed every take arms against the saved troubles, and by opposing and I was born in Nottinghamshire, more to the northern part, but there when I was about eight or nine years like old. Like in Tumas, long kaikai displa tripla liklik pick, all time, all time. I discovered that to most of them, Persia was little more than a vague romantic name. They had very little idea of where it exactly was. Hurls all sorts of abuse at me, and all through question time, these two pansies over there, what with retractions of the things which we said about But this isn't English. This is the choir of St. Peter's Church on South Uist in the Outer Hebrides. The words are Gaelic, one of the Celtic languages which once dominated much of Western Europe, but now exist only in pockets like this, mostly on its loneliest fringes. We tend to think of English as a timeless and inevitable component of life in Britain. In fact, it is neither. As languages go, it is a relative stripling, and its very existence somewhat improbable. Had history taken any of several very slight turns, we might all now be speaking a language very like the Gaelic of South Uist, or perhaps like modern Dutch, or Danish, or French. Few of the world's languages have had to weather greater knocks and buffetings in the course of their history, or been more gloriously enriched in the process. If there is one sterling quality about English, it is not the orderliness of its grammar or the richness of its vocabulary. It is simply its remarkable ability to survive. The beginnings of most languages are lost in the mists of prehistory, but for English we have a pretty good idea. The story starts in about the year 450 AD, when bands of Germanic peoples, Angles, Saxons, Jutes, and probably Frisians, crossed the North Sea to southeast England and, in a piecemeal fashion, began taking the land away from the native Celts. It's difficult to conceive the sense of indignity that the Celts must have felt at finding themselves overrun by primitive, unlettered warriors from the barbaric fringes of the Roman Empire. For the Celts were a sophisticated people. For nearly four centuries they had been part of a great civilization and enjoyed the privileges and comforts that went with it. But now, with the Roman Empire crumbling and the legions called home, they were hopelessly vulnerable. The native Celts referred to the invaders as Saxons, and the land under their sway was first known as Saxonia. But at some point in the first hundred years or so, for reasons unknown, the invaders became generally referred to as Angli, and the land they conquered as Anglia. Even though the Angles were only a small and possibly incidental part of the invading forces, they settled in places like this, at Sutton Hoo in Suffolk. In 1938, an amateur archaeologist named Basil Brown, investigating some interesting mounds in this field through which I'm now walking, made one of those discoveries archaeologists dream of. He'd found an ancient Anglo-Saxon burial site, containing an 89-foot-long ship buried in this mound here to my left, 
and an incomparably rich collection of jewelry, regalia, and other artifacts. But there was nothing here, and precious little elsewhere, to indicate how these people spoke and what they sounded like. To find out how much we know about the language of these people, I went to Cambridge to see Ray Page, a tall, bearded emeritus professor of Anglo-Saxon studies at Corpus Christi. Is it possible to say when English began? No, I don't think it's possible to say that. What we can say is that there are some very early objects that have what are clearly words or names written on them, um, but we don't know exactly what they mean or what the words, if they are words, mean or what the names imply. There's one on a brooch from Wakerley in Northamptonshire which simply says, Boo-hoo, B-U-H-U. <laughs> now, goodness knows what boo-hoo means. So I'm just trying to get some idea of the of how much you have to work with or, or how little you have to work with. How many different pieces of information might be out there? Oh, you're, you're in the tens and, uh, uh, and at the most hundreds. Really? Yes, oh yes. And this is always a problem. What do you expect to find inscribed on an object? If you were to go into some houses, you see a doormat, and it has a text written on it. Then you go into the bathroom and see the bathmat, and that has a text written on it. Now, the one in the bathroom says bathmat. So you go to the doormat, and you say, oh, that must say doormat, but what it says is welcome. <laughs> now, how could you have guessed that? Yes. If those were the only two bits of the English language you had surviving from that century, how would you know what the relationship between those two statements were? And is, and is that approximately the sort of situation well, uh, you're dealing with? We, we, have, we have quite a lot of inscriptions in Scandinavia, but a lot of them say absolutely nothing. <laughs> you see, there's a beautiful runic inscription on a piece of bone, and it says, Theta er bane, this is bone. Well, <laughs> great news, you know. <laughs> Hurrah, we all shout, we've got a text here. But it's not telling you much about the nature of life. For the first piece of real evidence of an emergent English language, we must travel 280 miles north from Cambridge to Dumfries and Galloway. There, in the village church of Rothwell, I met English language professor Richard Hogg, who travelled up specially from Manchester University. So tell me, Richard, why have you brought me to this obscure corner of southwest Scotland? Well, it certainly is obscure, but and this is a tiny little church, but once we go in, what we are going to see is a cross, an Anglo-Saxon cross, that was made round about 700, or just shortly afterwards. And that cross is decorated with panels. It has Latin inscriptions on it, but that's not what we are here to see. Although, I'm no doubt that will be interesting. What we will see is an extract from an Anglo-Saxon poem called The Dream of the Rood. And this extract, which we find here, is possibly the very first piece of English literature that we have. Really? Really, indeed. There is stuff that is written maybe twenty, a couple of decades later, um, which is certainly uh, literature, but before that we only have one or two word inscriptions and the occasional charter with English names in it. But this is a piece of real Old English poetry. Well, great, let's go have a look. Uh, now, I'm in the same position as you. I've not seen this cross for real before either, so I'm just as excited as you are about seeing it. 
gosh. Wow, it's um, really something. It's very, very impressive. And the most striking yeah. thing to me is that it's much bigger than I'd expected. Yes, it's about 18 foot tall. And what you see, apart from a, a wonderful sculpture, is down at the top of the sculpture and down the sides of the sculpture, what you see at first sight is what looked like a lot of Roman numerals. But they're not Roman numerals. The runic letters, the letters from the runic alphabet which the Anglo-Saxons brought with them across from the continent. Now can you decipher any of this? I can read it to you Please. in Anglo-Saxon. Just a short passage that leads up to Christ was on the cross. Fela itchontham bercher ye bieden habe rathra wurda ye seach werda god therla thenian Thustro havden berigen midwalken welden des rau, shirna shiman, shedu forth erde, wan nun de waltnum. Weop el ye shaft, quid on kuningus fool, Christ was on roda. I have endured terrible fates on that hill. I saw the Lord of hosts suffer terribly. Darkness had covered in clouds the body of the Lord. A shadow shone across the earth. It grew dark underneath the clouds. All creation wept, wept for the fall of the king. Christ was on the cross. Old English was an immensely complex tongue, full of abstruse declensions and complex inflections. Yet it was also a language of great resourcefulness and vitality, a language rich in possibility, as the linguistic historian Otto Jespersen has put it. And once its users became literate, as they did in the 6th century with the introduction of Christianity by St. Augustine, their language and literature flowered with astonishing speed and assurance. This cultural outpouring found its sharpest focus in the far northern kingdom of Northumbria. Here, on the outermost edge of the civilized world, sprang forth England's first great poet, Cadman, its first great historian, the Venerable Bede, and its first great scholar, Alcuin of York, who became head of Charlemagne's palace school at Aachen and was one of the progenitors of the Renaissance. For a time, as the historian Simeon Potter has put it, the light of learning shone more brightly in Northumbria than anywhere else in Europe. Barely had this cultural revival got underway than England and her young language were under attack again, this time by Viking invaders. These were people who were related to the Anglo-Saxons by both language and blood. At first, the Viking incursions consisted of hit-and-run raids along the east coast, but by the ninth century they came in ever greater numbers with the intention of conquest and settlement. After a series of battles, in 878 a treaty was signed between the English king Alfred and the Norse intruders, establishing what was called the Dane Law, a line dividing control of Britain between the English in the south and the Norse-speaking Danes in the north. The Danish influence on the English language was considerable. The scale of their settlements can be seen from the fact that more than 1,400 place names in northern England are of Scandinavian origin. One of the most important centres of power and commerce was York, or Jorvik, as it was known to the Norsemen. Right, if you'd just like to come here, I'll just tell you a little bit about the museum. Now then, it's based on an archaeological dig that was done on this site, done by York Archaeological Trust. 
At the popular Jorvik Center in York, they've taken great pains to capture the sounds of the Norse language spoken in the 10th century. First of all, though, you get in a little electric car, takes you backwards in time, back to the year 948. That's your destination this morning. And when you get there, the time car turns round and you see all the sights, sounds and smell the smells of one street of the busy town of Jorvik. But how can we possibly know, nearly a thousand years after the fact, what these people sounded like? Ray Page was one of the linguists who worked on the recreation of Viking voices. Yes, well, one of the bits we had in the soundtrack from the uh, Jorvik Centre, it's spoken by an old man called Gamal, which means old, and what he says is, Vesel mother og elaskapi klærat hivetna. Hon theta sinis ekimikit hon Now, the first bit of that is a bit of genuine Old Norse. It's from an Old Norse poem that probably dates from the late Viking age, but isn't recorded until the 13th century. It's a bit of verse, and what it means is, uh, a poor sort of chap and one not very bright is tends to laugh at anything that's going on. Now, of the genuine Old Norse there, the stuff that comes from an early poem, we know that the words are all right for the 13th century. We believe that they were reasonably all right for, shall we say, the 11th or 10th centuries. But we know in general terms how they are pronounced from the spelling, and we assume that the spelling is a close indication of pronunciation and that's the most we can do now what would english be like today if it hadn't been for the norse invasion? oh there would be a, a number of some very common words indeed in modern english which would be presumably different um one obvious example is the word they now, the old English word for they was he, and that was, of course, easily confused with the singular he. The old Norse word for they is their, and presumably at some time it was thought that it was advisable to have some distinction between he and they, and so the English brought in the Norwegian or Scandinavian form with a th sound at the front of it, and so that is now the common word in the English language. There are a number of other quite common words that um, uh, occur in the English language which are of either Norwegian or Scandinavian origin or alternatively have been influenced by Scandinavian sounds. For example, the word to get, which again is as common a word as you can get almost in the English language, um, would be uh, yetan in Old English, but geta in Old Norse. Now, yetan should give the modern English word yet, but instead we have the Norse, Norseified form, get, presumably due to influence of pronunciation. Altogether, the Scandinavians gave English some 2,000 words which still survive in the language, among them sky, skull, freckle, leg, scream, trust, and husband. Sometimes these new terms displaced Old English words, but often they took up residence alongside them, adding a useful synonym to the language, 
so that today in English we have both craft and skill, wish and want, shriek and screech, ditch and dyke, nay and no. But one final cataclysm awaited the English language in its formative period, the Norman conquest of 1066. The Normans were Vikings who had settled in northern France 200 years before, but had, rather strangely, given up their own language and culture and become thoroughly Frenchified. Their conquest of Britain was, it hardly needs saying, one of the great and decisive moments in the development of the English language. Derek Britton, from Edinburgh University, is an expert on the period. We met in a restaurant, for reasons that will become apparent in a moment, and I asked him how immediate and widespread an impact there was from the Norman Conquest. There was an immense influence through uh, the existence of French as a prestige language in England from the time of the Conquest to the, towards the end of the, the 15th century. But that influence was principally through the vast, vast amount of borrowing of words. French influence on the actual structure of English was minimal. In other words, the, the notion that the, the profound structural changes whereby English lost many of its inflections on nouns, adjectives and demonstratives was in any way influenced by French is simply not true, certainly not demonstrable. English would have evolved in terms of its grammar and its suffixation very much as it had if the Normans had been routed at the Battle of Hastings. Excuse me, miss, could we have a menu, please? Thank you very much. Thank you. Right, Bill, well, we're, what we're going to, to do then is we're, we're going to look for medieval French uh, borrowings, many of which are actually going to look really rather homely and native, in fact. So what do you see here that tells us something about the development of English? All right, well, let's, let's look at the starters, shall we, for instance. Um, now, you'll find that uh, nearly all the fish terms uh, are foreign and are medieval uh, French loans. Um, mackerel, the humble mackerel, um, but delicious, uh, is from French. And that will, have, that will have driven out an old English French, uh, fish name? Almost certainly, but I couldn't tell you what that was. Um, salmon, um, place, and what about um, the, the and soup? Of course, we should not forget. Uh, soup uh, is a, a borrowing from French, granted with sort of later French influence on pronunciation. Otherwise, we would have been saying soup of the day instead of soup of the day. Right. Now, what about the um, the thing that you you often see in books that um, the the beasts of the field had old English names, but the, once they were cut up and brought to table, they were given French names. Is that true? That's right. Well, on the main courses, we can see the roast beef of old England uh, with Yorkshire pudding, for instance. Uh, now, uh, unfortunately, roast beef is entirely alien. Roast uh, is itself uh, a borrowing, as are many terms for types of preparation, if you like. But beef, then, is actually a borrowing from French birth. And as you were saying, we have ox and cow, but beef. Calf, but French veal. Sheep, but French mutton. Deer, but French venison. P, 
pig, but French pork. The Norman Conquest might have spelled the death knell for English. Instead, it strengthened it. Its lowly status almost certainly helped English to become a simpler, less inflected language, for which we can all be grateful. A little of the old English complexity survives in a few common verbs, like to be, with its various forms of was, were, is, am, and are, and in a few irregular plurals like oxen, geese, and teeth. But for the most part, the grammar of English became comparatively regular and logical. Gender vanished too, mercifully, so we have none of the irksome uncertainty as in French of having to learn to write la plume or le plume, le parapluie or la parapluie, and it was vastly richer in vocabulary. From the Normans alone, English borrowed ten thousand words, forty percent of them, ironically, in the last hundred and fifty years up to about fourteen hundred, when Norman influence was in its most rapid decline. Three quarters of those words are still common in English usage. One important point I wanted to to make in terms of the history of、uh, French in England was that we know that by、uh, the thirteenth century, even the children of many of the great magnates of England were not acquiring French as their birth language, but were being instructed in it. And we know that because we have surviving manuals of instruction. In French, you see, so it was being actually from as early as the sort of beginning of the 13th century, one suspects, to be artificially maintained through、uh, instruction and study. So by the 13th century, it had actually become the birth language of very few people in the country. So English triumphed in the end, though of course it was a very different language, in many ways a quite separate language. From the old English of Alfred the Great or Bede, in fact, old English would have seemed about as incomprehensible to Geoffrey Chaucer as it does to us. So great had been the changes in the time of the Normans. Under the long onslaught of the Scandinavians and Normans, many thousands of old English words died out, eighty-five percent of them altogether. Today, only about four thousand five hundred words in English, about one percent of the total number of words in the language, are of old English origin. But they include many of the most fundamental terms in the language: eat, drink, man, wife, child, house, heaven, and God, among others, as well as most of the basic function words of the language, words like a, an, the, to, for, and and. As a result, in any list of the hundred most common words in English, ninety-eight or even ninety-nine will be of Old English origin. What emerged then was quite a mongrel language. But a particularly expressive one, Richard Hogg again. One of the great things about English is it has taken word vocabulary from a wide range of languages, most obviously Latin and French, and then Scandinavian. But it's taken words from almost every other language in the world, and when they have been taken in in large numbers, as the French words have and the Latin words have. They usually haven't simply replaced English native English words. They've been used alongside them, and then we exploit them. So that, for example, if you take three words, regal, royal, and kingly, which all, as it were, mean the same thing, belonging to a king, regal is a Latin word, royal 
is a French word, kingly is a native English word, and they have different connotations. Regal is, if you like to use another word which means virtually the same thing, the most majestic of these, and kingly is the most down-to-earth, and royal is the middle-class one, if you like. To get some sense of just how mongrel a language English has become, I set Richard Hogg and Derek Britton a small task. Well, I wonder if, if maybe we could just illustrate this by having a look at a copy of today's newspaper. Here's a, there's a, an article here. Play the game public schools tell their boys. Now, there are there one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight words. And of those, play the game, tell, and possibly boys are Old English in origin. Um, how many is that? Has anybody been counting whilst I've been doing five this? Out five out of eight. It's a very high proportion, actually. Mm. Of the others, you have public, schools, and there. Public and schools are both of Latin or French origin. Public, probably Latin through French. Schools, more closely allied to Latin. Um, so you've got two words of Romance origin, at least. And then you have there, and that's of Scandinavian origin. And that's really quite unusual in languages of the world to borrow words like there. It must mean that there was very close contact between English and Old Norse, that there must have been a period in some parts of the country of widespread bilingualism for a function word like that. In fact, we've borrowed the whole system of Old Norse pronouns so that they, their and them are borrowed lock, stock and barrel. All the Old English third-person pronouns began with H, and all that we've got left are sort of her and he, and his and him. Um, This is actually... Here's an article called Plain English Flew Over Tale of Office Affair. An employee of the Plain English campaign resorted to plain speaking in the face of rumours that he was having an affair with a female colleague, an industrial tribunal was told yesterday. An uh, English employee, uh, medieval French borrowing, of English, the English, plain, borrowed from French. So, in 700 years, English had developed from a purely Germanic tongue into an unusually rich and vibrant hybrid, with a versatility and vocabulary unlike any the world had seen before. It was ready to take its place on the world stage. But to deal with that, we need another program. English, the English, face French, of English, rumours French, that English, he English, was English, having English and English, affair, very French affair. <laughs> 